There's no question that our best, strongest pain medicines are the opioids. They don't wear out, they go on working, they do not have serious medical side effects. We doctors were wrong in thinking that opioids can't be used long term. They can be and they should be. Every day brings another story about the depth of this country's opioid crisis. Overdoses up, emergency services overwhelmed, another family burying a loved one. We take you inside the battle against a deadly narcotic, a synthetic painkiller a hundred times more powerful than morphine. As a street drug, it's far more potent than even the purest forms of heroin. The misuse of and addiction to opioids is a serious national crisis with devastating effects to public health as well as social and even economic welfare in Canada. Opioids are a class of drugs which include heroin, morphine, prescription painkillers like OxyContin, and synthetic opioids like fentanyl and carfentanil. While synthetic opioids are a relatively new addition to this class of drugs, opioid is a term that encompasses all the narcotics, both natural and synthetic, that bind to opioid receptors in the brain. Naturally derived opioids, including morphine, are found in the waxy milk of the opium poppy plant. This substance, known as opium when it's dried, has been used for its painkilling and psychoactive effects since ancient times. Morphine was first extracted from the opium poppy in 1804 and was marketed as a painkiller and even a treatment for opium addiction. In 1898, Bayer Co. started mass production of a new opioid, which was hailed as a miracle drug and used liberally as a painkiller and cough suppressant. The name of that miracle drug was heroin. While opium and opioids have been consumed at alarming rates in many regions and at many times throughout history, the current opioid crisis is characterized by the shocking number of deaths from opioid overdose, something unparalleled in the long history of opioid use and misuse. So how did we get here? How did we get from miracle drug to an epidemic of overdose and death? My name is Amber, and welcome to episode 51 of Raw Talk. Following in the footsteps of morphine and heroin, in the 1990s, pharmaceutical companies began to push prescription opioid painkillers such as OxyContin. The medical community was reassured that patients would not become addicted to these new opioid pain relievers, so they began to prescribe them at a higher rate. We wanted to hear from physicians who are experts in pain management to get their opinions on how we got to the current crisis. Anton and I sat down with Dr. Hans Clark, a staff anesthesiologist and the medical director of the Pain Research Unit and Pain Services at Toronto General Hospital. The opioid crisis has, you know, become the focus of media attention, I'd say, definitely in the past eight years. Uh, it, it all started when we, you know, began prescribing opioids in, let's say, the late 80s, early 90s. There was a huge push with respect to better pain treatment and starting to use the pain scale, the numeric rating scale, as the, you know, gold standard for managing people's pain. And I think over time, we began to see that uh, this strategy became problematic, in particular with a subset of patients that had high risk factors for moving on to developing an opioid misuse disorder, or, or you know, what's now termed an opioid use disorder. And that subset of patients became more numerous in the population. And so we have, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of Canadians now on relatively high doses of opioids. 
Anton and I also spoke with Dr. Andrea Furlan, a physician and scientist at Toronto Rehab UHN and an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto, who gave us her perspective on how the current crisis got started. The way it started was probably because physicians had a desire to help people with chronic pain. And because chronic pain is so common, it affects one in five individuals, we know that uh, there is a desire that they will be uh, helping this type of pain. In Ontario, we know that one in seven Ontarians were prescribed an opioid in 2015. So that's a lot of opioids going on. So when they started uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, opioids were not known to have, uh, the, the, the science was not so advanced. So we thought that probably addiction and overdose was going to be rare, very rare. Now in the last uh, 10 years, 15 years, especially in North America, there has been a lot of new research studies done uh, with administrative large databases. And we found that this is really not rare. Uh, a lot of people may end up getting addicted to these medications, and it, when they get addicted, they may abuse and overdose. Or even those who are not addicted, they may overdose and die, not even being addicted. It may just be an accident. But that's not the whole story. One thing we discovered while researching for this episode is that different people have different perspectives on the crisis, its roots, and what we should be focusing on. Melissa spoke with Matt Johnson, a harm reduction worker managing the outreach team at Queen West Community Centre, who had a very different take on things. Prescribing opioids and the overdose epidemic have absolutely nothing to do with each other. I don't call it the opiate epidemic because it's not about opiates. It's an overdose epidemic. It's about a poison drug supply. It's about a black market drug supply that is not safe. That's what it's about. The folks who are doing frontline work who've been on the ground have been in this fight with the province for the last few years when they first started trying to talk about overprescription of OxyContin and all these things. If you actually look at the research around how many people end up moving from a prescription opioid to heroin, the numbers are not very high. The, the research I have shows 10%. So 90% of people are getting prescribed opioids with no problem at all. There's other stuff going on with that 10% of people. And really, it's about health services that aren't being available to support people and the other stuff that's going on. It was never about fentanyl patches being diverted that was causing this. It's always been black market fentanyl. If you look at the police seizure data, you can see exactly when fentanyl started to become an issue. And the, the police were very clear, this fentanyl is black market fentanyl that we're taking. It's a very small number of patches and most of it's black market. The, the government's first action when they started talking about the overdoses was to crack down on prescribing. And all that did was increase the number of overdoses that were happening as people who were cut off their prescription moved over to heroin, which was cut with fentanyl. For this episode, we also wanted the perspective of someone involved in policymaking. So Maria spoke to Joe Mehevic, a Toronto City Councillor and Chair of the Toronto Board of Health. We will hear more from Joe later on, but here were his thoughts on how this crisis started. Well, there is a combination of factors at play in our um, increasingly complex uh, society where you have uh, big disparities in uh, social uh, equality, you see higher uses of, uh, of uh, drugs where you see industries where people are prone to injuries or particular stresses, where doctors have prescribed opioid painkillers and then asked people or stopped uh, giving medical referrals for to pharmacists for that, then uh, you see people sometimes going into the illegal market. There are all kinds of reasons why people uh, use uh, drugs 
and there isn't any one in particular that says, okay, this is why we have a, a particular crisis. Of course, the entry of fentanyl into the into drugs, opioid drugs, is really perhaps the game changer in that uh, the tolerance for fentanyl uh, within the human body is very, there's a very tight margin. And that is really what is causing the deaths that are that are occurring uh, right now. And that's, of course, the key concern for public health folks. All of these diverse points of view make the crisis a very complex issue. People often have a very different outlook that is colored by their own experiences, which makes it that much more difficult to address. As we were trying to piece all of this together, we did some sleuthing and found that this crisis is not necessarily a new phenomenon. People have been using opium since at least 3,400 BCE, and its significance has never gone unnoticed. Numerous ancient deities, including Isis, Aphrodite, and Apollo, are frequently depicted adorned with opium poppies. Opium was used in medicine and for recreation for thousands of years, and the controversy surrounding this potent substance even led to the opium wars between China and the British Empire in the mid-1800s. So many Canadians were dependent on opium at the beginning of the 20th century that Canada became the first Western nation to ban the importation and sale of opium. Morphine was first isolated from opium in 1804, and 70 years later, heroin was synthesized from morphine. Ironically, morphine was initially thought to be a solution for opium addiction, and later, heroin was used to treat morphine abuse. When heroin was first marketed for use as a pain reliever starting in the late 19th century, not much was known about the addictive properties of synthesized poppy derivatives. However, soon the addictive nature of heroin and other synthesized opioids became apparent, resulting in the Canadian government controlling some substances and making others, like heroin, illegal in 1923. While opioids have been around for a long time, and widespread opioid addiction is certainly not a new phenomenon, what makes the current epidemic a crisis is the number of deaths due to overdose. Synthetic opioids like fentanyl which is 100 times stronger than morphine, and its analog carfentanil, which itself is 100 times stronger than even fentanyl, are the culprits, with illegal supplies coming from China and flooding the illicit drug market. Heroin and other illicit opioids are being cut with these extremely potent synthetic drugs, and the consequences have been devastating. In 2016, there were 2,458 apparent opioid-related deaths in Canada, not including Quebec with the highest rates coming from Western Canada. This number is equivalent to just under seven people dying each day, far greater than the number of Canadians killed daily in motor vehicle collisions that year. On average, 16 Canadians were hospitalized each day due to opioid poisoning in 2016, and that number is growing. Yeah, the opioid epidemic has been really in the news and at the forefront of everybody's uh, talk, mainly because of the number of people who are dying. We know that in Canada, the number of people now has been approaching for almost 4,000 people every year who is dying. This is a lot of people for Canada. And uh, in the United States, is a, this number is even bigger because of the population is much bigger, to the point that uh, it's becoming unacceptable. There is such a stigma around the use of opioids that people are reluctant to talk about it, even if they are verified pain patients with no history of opioid abuse. As we heard at the beginning, different people have different perspectives, and this crisis is a very complex issue. We all want to find someone to blame, and a lot of that blame has been directed at physicians. 
Roughly 100 million Americans suffer from chronic pain, and most health officials agree that legal painkillers prescribed by doctors and filled by pharmacies triggered a tidal wave of addiction throughout the U.S. Recent guidelines from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention urge doctors to avoid or dramatically limit these prescriptions in most cases. Why is so much of the blame being aimed at doctors? Synthetic opioids like oxycodone have been available on the prescription market since the 1950s, but physicians were well aware of their addictive properties. This changed with the introduction of so-called slow-release opioids like OxyContin in the 1990s. At the beginning of this episode, we played a clip from an OxyContin promotional video that shows just how hard this drug was pushed into the market. Doctors were told these new opioids were safe to prescribe more freely, as they were very unlikely to lead to addiction or overdose. We now know that this information was misleading, and Purdue Pharma, the makers of OxyContin, have faced intense backlash for their promotion of opioid drugs as safe and non-addictive, something that they likely knew to be untrue. It's easy to prescribe. So the first thing that happens is when someone is in pain, if you don't prescribe opioids, you have to find alternatives. And uh, physicians and nurse practitioners, they have very little time with this patient, especially family doctors and GPs, general practitioners. They may have maybe five minutes with patients. So it's much easier to give a prescription. The patient leaves the office and leaves happy. When you don't prescribe, then you have to find alternatives like exercises, mindfulness, physiotherapy, massage, acupuncture, other medications that are not covered by the drug benefit plans. And they may not know because chronic pain is not taught in medical schools, very little. And also in residency, family doctors get maybe two hours in how to manage chronic pain. So they don't know what to do. So when they don't know, they prescribe, they give the patients what uh, it's easy, what they have been taught. And usually, where do they learn about prescribing opioids? Is They go to conferences, they talk to a drug rep who is selling those drugs, or they get visits from those drug representatives from pharmaceutical industry that comes and teach them how to prescribe these medications. But you don't get a visit in your office from a massage therapist saying, this is how you prescribe massage, or this is how when you prescribe a alternative medicine. So they don't learn and they don't, they start prescribing what they know best. So how would you treat pain? Uh, you would prescribe an opioid-based medication, typically is where we evolved to, to fix a number. And uh, once we started to treat uh, pain by fixing numbers and prescribing opioids, we were also led to believe uh, a little before my time that you could continue to prescribe opioids until people's numbers were less than four. And regardless of the dose that you prescribed, patients would uh, be fine because you're just treating their pain. Now, the opioid quote-unquote crisis is not as easy as is being defined by most of the media outlets, i.e. our prescription pad is not directly responsible for the deaths you're seeing now. I think that crisis is completely separate. It is more related to the advent of illicit fentanyl. And many of the policies that we've been enacting from a government level have been aimed at fixing the problem for the minority of individuals and having a large impact on many of the patients currently on opioids dealing with pain problems. And so I don't think the opioid crisis is going anywhere. You know, we've reduced our prescribing on a national level by 10%, and we see almost a tripling of our death toll as prescriptions come down. And so it is not as simple as uh, blaming physicians, per se, for an overprescribing issue. When 
you look at you know, the recreational or the IV drug use population, many of them will say that uh, they started on the journey of um, addiction based on starting with a prescription opioid. But it certainly does not mean that they were prescribed it. It was that they accessed it. And so as a physician, we can certainly take responsibility for the diversion aspects and how many pills we're prescribing and how much we're overprescribing. And that is definitely an issue that we're looking to address. But if we're going to fix this with one foul swoop and say that creating a prohibition climate is going to help the current population, that's certainly not likely to happen. And we're seeing the, the unintended consequences and the fallout of some of these knee-jerk reactions. So as you mentioned, this opioid misuse disorder or this opioid crisis that's going on, it's really, it's present, it's real, it's here. Where do we go from there? How do we change this? How do we actually solve this? Well, you get all the stakeholders together, right? This is not just a pain issue. It is not just an addiction issue. It is not just institutional uh, gaps. We have to bring all of these folks together, and we need to bring law enforcement. We need to bring uh, the physicians, the patients, the uh, the stake, all the stakeholder organizations together. And it's become this catch-all environment where if you reduce or you stop opioid prescribing, you're doing a good thing. Well, we'll end up in a place where people will be having surgery and not having any pain meds soon if we continue on the trajectory that that run and in the acute pain setting the opioid is still the best treatment we have for acute uh, severe pain the opioid crisis as it stands isn't going anywhere if we don't change our policies and create uh, awareness to the fact that what we're seeing is not simply a prescription opioid issue it is a true illicit fentanyl problem and what we've done is given more power to that illicit world by taking this away and not providing enough uh, treatment strategies for those that are struggling with an opioid use disorder Opioids are still the best thing we have for the treatment of many types of pain. And like Hans said, we don't want patients to suffer because we as a society are scared. People who use opioids for pain relief are already afraid to come forward for fear that they will be judged and stigmatized. Many patients who relied on these drugs for years are now faced with a dilemma. Find a new method to treat their pain or find a new source for their current opioid medication. And while it may be easy to point the blame squarely at prescription opioids, the people who are affected by prescribing practices are just a small portion of the population that is dealing with the opioid crisis. The reality is that overdoses and deaths from opioids are not coming from prescription medications, but from the illicit drug market. So we are leaving the doctor's office and heading out into the community to explore the other side of the story, where the overdoses and deaths from opioids are not in the form of statistics, but are a part of the day-to-day reality of those on the ground. What it came from was we had a meeting with the city where a number of us had been talking about we were just super burnt out. We had been going to funeral after funeral after memorial after memorial, and just every week it was like somebody else was dying. That was Matt Johnson again, the harm reduction worker from Queen West Community Centre. He is also one of three individuals involved in the inception of Toronto's first overdose prevention site at Moss Park. And we had lost the like godfather of harm reduction in Toronto, Rafi Balian, who he ran the harm reduction program at South Riverdale Community Health Centre where Zoe Dodd works. Um, he had d- died of an overdose at a conference on safe consumption sites in Vancouver. So we were losing our colleagues and our friends and our loved ones and our clients, and it was just endless. And so we had a, a meeting with the mayor, 
And in that meeting, two Fred Victor workers got a call that there had been two overdoses. One of them, they knew the person had been revived. The other one, they didn't know because they were en route to the hospital. And so we were like, this is what's going on. We can't even have a meeting without having two overdoses, the call about two overdoses happening. And so we said, we're going to do this. We're going to open a site. Will you support us? And he said, no. They thought we were just joking, but that was Thursday and we opened on Saturday. And what really is an overdose prevention site? An overdose prevention site, it's most simple. It's just a safe place for people to use where there's people on hand and equipment on hand to properly and safely deal with an overdose should it occur. When opioids are consumed in large quantities, they can cause a decrease in our drive to breathe, which means our body isn't getting enough oxygen. That's the basis of an overdose. Overdose prevention sites are staffed with experienced personnel and stocked with supplies like oxygen and naloxone to reverse overdoses as they're happening. This is critical because we know that people nearly always survive if we can intervene at the earliest stages of overdoses. But Matt says that these sites have other benefits too. So we have the stuff on site to deal with overdoses, but then as well as the overdoses you actually respond to, there's overdoses that just never occur because somebody has a safe place to do it. So if I'm using in the Tim Hortons bathroom, I'm going to be rushed. I'm going to be trying to get it in and, and get out of the bathroom before I get caught. And so people end up taking a whole package, just putting the whole thing in and, and then dropping. In this site, they can take their time. They can do a, a proper shot. They can take their time when they're injecting. They're not getting super hurried. And then there's also the sort of abscesses that people don't get because they're they're using in a safe place. It's a clean place. We have really great infection control measures in place. Uh, so they're getting new equipment in a clean space. There's also just, I mean, this, we saw this at Moss Park. There was this huge sense of community that was built around the site. It's this aspect of the sites that Matt is most excited about. The sense of community that surrounds the Moss Park OPS. There's an overwhelming sense of belonging that comes from people looking out for one another. But some people think this aspect of overdose prevention sites promotes recreational drug use and that funding more OPSs will only exasperate the opioid crisis. How do we know these sites are actually working? How would you define success for an overdose prevention site? Because we're always looking for like evidence to support the use of such facilities. And, you know, recently there was a, an academic paper that was put out and shortly after retracted surrounding the efficacy of safe consumption sites. And they looked at a couple different studies and they found that they weren't helpful. And the paper was retracted because of incorrect methodology. How would you define like what is successful for an overdose prevention site and why do we know that they're successful? I mean, the way that we know that we're successful is that we're talking about this one paper that was put out about how they may not be as effective as people were saying. There is an overwhelming amount of research worldwide about these services and how effective they are and how effective they are at saving lives, but also, you know, cutting down on the hospital costs because people aren't going in for abscesses. And I mean, there's an endless amount of, of research and I mean, these things were really hard to get opened to begin with. The Tosca report is what got them finally in Toronto. The Tosca report was looking at the need for safe consumption sites in Toronto and Ottawa. And the people who did that research worked really, really hard on it. And it took years of that existing before it was finally decided that they would get opened. There's tons and tons of research out there that show that these are effective. There was one paper that was saying maybe they're not as effective as as they were, and but then that's it, what people latch on to, and that's I know. part of the that's part of the problem. Like there's there's pushback from different people who are in government or different people who are like making these policy decisions or are part of making these policy decisions. And even though the paper was retracted, people will still point to it and say like maybe they're not useful. Well, they can't really point to it now because it doesn't yeah. exist anymore. 
But for me, what makes them effective is we haven't had any deaths. They get used. And I mean, some of the sites have 50 to 100 people, you know, using them. And so there has never been a single death. There's rarely calls to the ambulance. If you go on the Insight website, they've had the running tally since they first opened. You know, it's thousands and thousands of people who've been through and used it and not a single death. I mean, that's remarkable. Overdose prevention sites are one aspect of a concept called harm reduction. In the simplest sense, harm reduction refers to a set of strategies aimed at reducing the negative consequences associated with drug use without actually having people stop using drugs. It encompasses practices like clean needle and naloxone kit distribution. But the way that harm reduction is executed can mean different things between different communities or even individuals. Ultimately, it's a way of working with and respecting people where they're at in life. Harm reduction is, is actually somewhat complex. The simplest answer, which is like sort of the dictionary definition that, that's most commonly used, is it's a way of working with people or a way of setting up services that you work with people who use drugs without making them either stop or reduce their drug use. Traditional, Traditionally, services in Canada have required people to abstain from the drug use before you could actually get any services. And it was found that that just didn't work. And why is harm reduction particularly important in light of the quote-unquote opioid crisis Canada right now? Because it's the only thing that's that's keeping people alive. I mean, that's that's been the sort of thing with harm reduction since it started. I mean, harm reduction has existed for as long as drugs have existed. Before prohibition, harm reduction didn't have a name because this is what people did. If you think about, you know, people having an idea of their own doses they should take of their medications, things like that, like that, that's all in the same kind of spirit. But in Canada, at least, harm reduction came out of particularly the HIV crisis of the 1980s. And so when we saw a softening of the abstinence model for sex, which I think we look back on now and, and say, you know, the fact that it was like, thinking? just don't have, don't have sex until you're married, that people thought that might work to address things. I mean, it looks ridiculous now, but that's what was the common thing at the time. So when condoms started to be distributed and people recognized that HIV was such a serious thing that it, whether you wanted people to not have sex or not, it didn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. HIV rates from sexual transmission went down, but HIV rates among injection drug users did not go down. And so it was recognized that the only way to address this was to start distributing syringes. And some more forward-thinking people started to say, this isn't just about disease transmission. This isn't about syringes. This is actually about the way that we look at people, work with people, treat people, and that just as much as we want to be non-oppressive and non-discriminatory around the sex that people have, we want to be non-oppressive and non-discriminatory about the drugs that people use, the way that people live their lives, and the life situations that people are in. According to Matt, we tend to do more harm than good with traditional treatment models based on abstaining from drug use entirely. But it's hard to get everyone on board to allow and fund harm reduction initiatives over more traditional services. So as harm reduction has been a controversial thing in Canada... It's been hard to push through. We've had to prove again and again that not only does it work, but it works better than what what else we have and that it's cheaper. And so that's the other thing that we can sort of continually say about harm reduction is that not only does it work, it's now considered best practice. It's you know the most effective strategy of working with people, but it also every dollar you put into harm reduction saves $7 and other related healthcare costs. So it actually, it's, it's cheaper as well as more effective. Harm reduction can save money and save lives. But these services need to be delivered in a way that's accessible and welcoming for drug users. That's why some of the most successful harm reduction initiatives are run by people with lived experience, like Matt. Can you talk a little bit about your lived experience in particular and 
why you think that's important in the context of harm reduction and how that makes these programs better. So my experience is, I mean, I started off as a peer worker. That's the first, well, actually I started off as a client first. So I'm a drug user. I've been an injection drug user for most of my life now. I started quite early, like in my teens, and I have a history of homelessness and mental health concerns and sort of a, a lot of the different things that people I work with are, are facing. Mm-hmm. So I started off as a client at some of the services that I didn't work at. I got hired as a peer worker, like the people on my team. And then after doing that for a few years, I kind of fell in love with the work and then went away, went to school, became a social worker, came back and now continue to work in the field doing just different work. And so, I mean, part of the reason it was important for me to go to school in the first place was that when I was on a peer outreach team, my supervisor was a wonderful person and she was a mentor to me and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be where I am without her. But I kept saying, you know, you're relying on a lot of information from us. You're relying on us to tell you what's up. Wouldn't it make sense if one of us ended up taking this over? And because she was a good worker, she said, yeah, it do, it does make sense and one of you should. And that's what sort of pushed me to do it. That peer work at its best can be transformative, but it's at its worst is tokenistic. So if we have an agency of all people paid really well and then we hire the one drug user and pay them crap and and don't treat them very well purely for branding reasons or or to like to take their i mean lived experience is is incredibly valuable Mm -hmm. it's not valued enough but people who work in the field recognize that it can be super helpful so sometimes people hire people to take that incorporate it in their own practice and but they kind of get reap the benefits from it so it, it shouldn't be just that level of work that has people with lived experience. It should be all through agencies. And in the HIV movement, they have these two terms, GIPA and MIPA, which stands for the greater involvement of people living with HIV and AIDS and the meaningful involvement of people living with HIV and AIDS. And so it started with GIPA, the greater involvement of people, but they saw that it, it was often being tokenistic, tokenized positions, volunteer positions, things like that. So people changed it to MIPA, the meaningful involvement, and that people with lived experience have a lot to offer that hard-won wisdom is priceless and it needs to be at all levels of programming from the planning of programming to the to the development of programming to the um, implementation of programming so we know that harm reduction works and we know that harm reduction initiatives are better when people with lived experience work at all levels of programming as matt said we know initiatives like overdose prevention sites are successful because of the staggering number of overdoses that are prevented and reversed, and the sense of community that builds around these sites. In Ontario, the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care recently completed a three-month review of the evidence supporting OPS effectiveness and announced in October 2018 that the existing model will be replaced with a new consumption and treatment site model. The new model will focus heavily on treatment for drug use and will not allow for pop-up sites. The Ontario government will also cap the number of sites at 21. They claim this number is enough to meet the needs of communities across the province. We asked Matt about his thoughts on the new model. Can we talk a little bit about this new model and is it a step forward or backwards? It's a step backwards for sure. This reminds me of of when Insight first opened. They opened under Liberal government and then very shortly Harper's government got in and moved to shut them down. And so Insight took it to court. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And Harper's government, which claimed to be fiscally conservative and so concerned about the bottom line, spent millions of dollars taking insight to the Supreme Court, knowing they were going to lose because they wanted to make that point to social conservatives. Insight was Canada's first supervised consumption site, established 15 years ago in East Hastings, Vancouver. In 2011, the prime minister came close to shutting Insight down 
but the challenges were brought before the Supreme Court, and justices unanimously ordered the federal Minister of Health to grant an exemption, allowing Insight to remain open. Insight was allowed to continue, and so in retaliation, the federal government made a set of guidelines that you had to follow to open a new safe injection site that made it so onerous and difficult that no other ones opened. This reminds me of that. This is just a way to cap the number of sites that can open, make it harder for places to open and operate, and get a little bit of buy-in from people who are really against the sites by saying, well, they're getting treatment too. Because one thing that's come up, I know it came up in the review because I was part of the review, is that our treatment system doesn't work. The abstinence-only sort of traditional rehab, you know, residential treatment facilities have dismal success rates. The sort of abstinence-only model has just shown to be very ineffective for the large, large majority of people. And so although opiate-assisted therapy is included in the treatment, I think what they really want is get people to stop using drugs. I mean, they've said they're going to open new detox beds. Detox is not really the answer for this. If detox was going to work, it would have been helpful decades ago when we first started offering detox. It's never been an answer, and it's certainly not an answer now. So yeah, it's a step backwards. It was a way for the, the provincial government to have their cake and eat it too. So according to frontline workers, this new model is a step backwards in addressing the national public health crisis. Matt also explains that capping the number of sites at 21 and preventing pop-up sites negates the intended purpose of overdose prevention sites as a quick response to an emergency situation. The sites are supposed to be able to open quickly in an area that demonstrates need, even if that need is only for a couple of months. This would be impossible under Ontario's consumption and treatment model. According to Matt, a step in the right direction would be decriminalizing drugs entirely. While he obviously supports overdose prevention sites, he explains that they're ultimately a band-aid solution to the real issue, the criminalization of the people who use drugs. And actually, decriminalization is not such a fringe concept anymore. Matt recently sat in on a meeting with the Toronto Board of Health, where they discussed a public health approach to the opioid crisis. To get their perspective, we talked to Joe Mihovic, chair of the Board of Health. My role as the chair of the Board of Health is to guide public health policy for the city of Toronto. And just so that people are clear on what the public health does rather than the health care system, is we undertake those actions and initiatives that protect the health of uh, Torontonians. So that's what public health does, and it's in that vein that we are active uh, on the uh, supervised injection sites and overdose prevention sites. Councillor Mahevic discussed Canada's strategy to tackle the opioid crisis. Echoing Matt's sentiments, he explained that creating federal exemptions for harm reduction services like safe consumption sites was a step forward for Canada. But he's very frank about the fact that our progress at the national level is slow. He implores the government to put in place a system that makes it easier and faster to establish such facilities, as well as engage in a serious conversation about decriminalizing all drugs. Can you uh, tell our audience a little bit what the difference is between decriminalization and legalization? Decriminalization basically would mean that anyone who has uh, is found with uh, small amounts of any drugs would uh, not be charged by the police. Legalization is what we have now with uh, marijuana. It's like alcohol. It's like any semi-restricted product. Uh, you can buy it. It's legal. It's usable by anyone uh, given certain conditions. For example, you're over 18. You don't drink and drive. You don't smoke marijuana and drive. 
decriminalization is different. You're as a society, you're saying this is not a legal product, but we will not go after you in the criminal justice system if you have that product or are using that product on an individual basis. We'll go after the the dealers, especially the big dealers, but we won't go after the frontline use of those drugs. Why won't we do that? Because we think that the time has come for us to stop using, and this is really, really important, a criminal justice approach to drugs and start using uh, a paradigm of public health approach to drugs. Many, many police officers, police chiefs across Canada, across North America, frankly, have said that the war on drugs is not working. If the concern is really to moderate, control, uh, limit the use of drugs in our society, sending in police officers, having them engage with the court system, the judicial system, and then with the prison system, really isn't going to deal with with the underlying issue. Based on a report written by Toronto's Chief Medical Officer Eileen Davila, the Toronto Board of Health voted unanimously to lobby the federal government to decriminalize drugs here in Canada, with the idea that our current system just isn't looking out for people's best interests. Decriminalization would be part of a public health approach to drugs. Could you tell us a little bit about the impetus to generate this public health approach? What really has generated is is really the failure of the, call it the criminalization approach. And when you think about it, when you see someone who's overdosed or who's drug dependent, what should you do? And you love that person. They are a member of your family or your community or a friend. Do you call a police officer or do you call a nurse or a doctor or a healthcare professional or a social worker? In days of old, the official societal position was No, they're using an illegal substance. The appropriate response is is to send in criminal justice authorities. Now the thinking is, is no, that that approach actually might be not only not helpful, but counterproductive by giving that person a record, not dealing with the underlying issues that uh, may need to be dealt with, that a much better approach is really to, to put them in contact with healthcare and social work professionals and people who can help sort out underlying issues that might be there, keep the person employed, keep the person stable. You know, all of us as human beings have our strengths and weaknesses. Some of us have different escapes. Others have others, other escapes from the, the pressures of day-to-day living. Getting your head around the psychology of uh, harm reduction and making sure that people understand that harm reduction is not saying that drug use is okay that it's kind of cool and, you know, there's no negative pieces to it. What you're saying is is that what's the best health result that I can achieve in this situation? And that's really what harm reduction is all about. And people are starting to get on board with this. When Eileen Davila's report was presented to the Board of Health, its members really rallied around the ideas to increase harm reduction services and call for decriminalization. The report was presented to the Board of Health And what was interesting, the report initiated the conversation around decriminalization of all drugs. There was no one who came in opposition. No one. There is a a broad consensus, and maybe this is the the motive behind, not the motive, but the background or the context of this is the presence of fentanyl in the currently illegal drug supply. 
people are supportive. People know it has really sparked a different kind of conversation. And maybe, maybe if there is a silver lining in the fentanyl crisis, it is that people are starting to see that a different approach is necessary. So what I found surprising is not only was there no opposition, but there was very strong support to go in a different direction with a, with a drug policy. How realistic is decriminalization in Canada right now? The NDP has it as the, its official policy that it would decriminalize uh, drugs if it gains power. The I do think the uh, Liberals are right now they're just figuring out the marijuana uh, or the cannabis uh, piece and uh, are not going to be going in this direction in the foreseeable future. And I think that the progressive conservatives are going in the other direction. However, the trend in the globe is actually in the other direction. And I think the implementation of cannabis, legalization of cannabis will, will push the bar in a different direction as well in our country. The Czech Republic and Portugal are the two big international examples right now of the decriminalization of uh, all drugs. And what they have found actually is, is that community safety in areas that were troubled before has gone up that the cost of the criminal justice system has, of course, gone way down, that it actually has produced a different kind of society, a more compassionate and tolerant society that is not only good for the drug user, but it's also good for the broader society. And there will be more studies on the Portuguese and Czech examples. And as that information comes out, I think people across the world will start to say, hey, you know what, this actually works. It actually, you produce better results uh, with a different kind of approach. So right now, I think the, the action is, uh, is really to have, provoke that national conversation in the media, in schools, in coffee shops, to make sure that Canadians understand what harm reduction is, understand what the real options are before folks, understand the difference between a criminal justice approach and a public health approach to drug use, if, as Torontonians and Canadians understand that, those issues, uh, then I think you're going to eventually see that percolate up uh, and you'll see the big policy changes. There are a lot of tears and a lot of families and a lot of heartbreak that happens uh, when anyone dies of, a, of an overdose. And I think the choice before us as uh, Canadians is uh, will we turn those tears into a kind of a, a good political action to say, could that life, could those lives have been saved if we had had in place a different approach with, uh, with drugs? That's doing politics in the best sense of the word, is saying, you know, there's a lot of suffering going on there from the survivors <laughs> and a lot of suffering from, uh, from injection drug users as well, who want a different approach. So a different way is possible. It's whether we have the insight and the political courage to make the changes that are necessary. To have the insight and courage that Joe mentioned to make those necessary changes, it is important to stay informed and stay engaged. If you are wondering what are some actions that you can take, here are three things that you can do. First, if you have lived experience with substance use or are medically trained, consider getting involved and volunteering at an overdose prevention site. For more information, email odpreventionsite at gmail.com. Second, consider making a donation to the Toronto Overdose Prevention Society. Find the link to their GoFundMe in our show notes. And finally, take political action. 
Whether that means informing yourself more on harm reduction and spreading the word, or calling up your city councillor and making your concerns heard. For more materials on the crisis, harm reduction, and the profiles of our speakers, check out our show notes. A huge thank you to our guests, as well as to our segment hosts for this episode, Melissa, Maria, and Anton, and to Alex for content development and fact-checking. Finally, a shout-out to Kat for storyboarding and the audio engineering work. And until next time, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.